This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest in Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, I'm joined here by Adam. Say hello, Adam. Hey, how's it going? Um, we are uh, going to discuss some some more butchering cuts today, so part of our uh, Cooking by Cut series. And if you reflect back on some past episodes, we covered the majority of the cuts in the front shoulder. Actually, no, we covered all the cuts in the front shoulder. We talked about the neck and the Denver steak. Now we're moving into the loin portion of the animal. So that's kind of your your center portion. We're going to start up top, uh, and we'll be talking about both the loin and the tenderloin, uh, which on various animals have different names. We'll get into that, but just... No, that's what we're commonly going to refer to them as, and we'll identify each one and go through it. And then next episode, we're going to talk about the ribs and what we're going to classify as the brisket. And that's actually going to be the cut of meat that's uh, like your your rib flap or your whatever cut of meat that's on the rib uh, on on game animals. So a little different than what you would call a brisket on a beef cow, beef cow, on a bovine. Um but yeah, so just some thoughts behind where we're going with that. Uh, and then other than that, first off, we'll kick it off with some news. Uh, so current events, let's see. Um, man, it's been a little bit. Uh, we, we t- I talked about my last elk trip uh, on a full episode with Casey. We did. We talked about the the um, ballad of the modern Western elk hunter. It's a good episode. It's also up on YouTube if you want to watch and stare at Casey and mine's face for 
uh, an hour as we talk, uh, super entertaining. Watch how many times I like pet my mustache, uh, which is good when I'm deep in thought. Um, outside of that, uh, not much has been going on. Kind of rolled through the Thanksgiving season. Uh, didn't do any hunting and then really looking forward to getting after some geese here in the near future. And then uh, next week we'll head off to our wild pig camp. So you'll actually probably be hearing this episode as I'm flying through the air to meet Adam and Adam and Leland and Ricky and Jen uh, to compile our crew in North Texas to join. So uh, really excited for that. And so we got pretty much full house there. So it should be some cool adventures down at uh, wild pig camp uh if you've if you're listening to this you have likely missed uh the opportunity to sign up for the december camp uh but we are having another camp in may of 2024 get your seats now they fill up quick but it's a good opportunity to learn to uh, shoot hunt butcher process cook wild pigs and then also if you're really into the camps that we do in uh, January, around toward the end of January, we're going to be hosting a uh, waterfowl camp, very similar to the format in which we have made our uh, our wild pig camps, where we're going to get people comfortable shooting, we're going to get them out hunting, we're going to get them uh, butchering and cooking waterfowl, so various geese, duck, whatever, the water dwellers that are legal to shoot. And that's going to be in Oklahoma uh, we're pairing up with GNH decoys, so that'll be super fun. We're going to be basing out of their headquarters to do all of our stuff, staying nearby, and then just kind of like traveling and exploring in the local area, uh, which a lot of their crew know pretty well. And we'll be hunting side by side each other, so that'll be kind of cool. It's not not guided. We're hunting together as a group, which will be fun. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what's going on recently for me. Uh, goose season's now in full swing. We may get some late big game who knows? But uh, that's pretty much it. I don't know. Adam, over to you. Well, I think it's been a little while since I've been on. So I've gone, I went on a big moose hunting trip, my first one ever in October. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't bring anything home. Well, I did. I brought some uh, wild edibles and some and a bunch of grouse home, which is nice, but no moose. Um, but learned a lot. Did a lot of tracking and, and uh, was with a one or two experienced guys who knew what they were doing. So I learned a lot and I'm hoping to get another or one of us hopefully gets another tag next year so I can try it again. Um, my deer, my deer rifle hunt went pretty similarly this year and I didn't bring anything home there either. So I'm hoping to get something with a bow or my freezer is going to be a little empty this year. Um, doing a little bit of duck hunting in the, we do a lot of, uh, field goose, Canada goose hunting every year. And, uh, this year, the farm where we do it, the their combine broke, so the corn stayed on way longer than it should have. Um, so we it just got cut now, so we'll be going goose hunting for the first time, hopefully next week. And uh, I'm going on a diver duck hunt for the first time next week as well, so I'm doing a guided hunt for that. They'll be out on the water, so uh, yeah, I look forward to that. But uh, so far, no big game animals to bring home this year, so I'm gonna have to remedy that before before Christmas. I mean, you and you and I are in the same boat on that one. I think this is a uh, man. Colorado has not been good to me over the last couple of years with big game animals, uh, but I, I'm not I'm not fretting. So I've got a uh, I've got some meat still in the freezer, which is good, and I, I like to work my way through that. And then uh, I'm moving in the summer, so 
not having a giant stockpile of meat is not necessarily a bad problem because then I can get where I'm going, which is uh, over on the East Coast, and uh, do do some some hunting there, which is plethora of whitetail country. So I'm excited to get back into that a bit. You'll be within driving distance, a long drive, but driving distance uh, from me now. So maybe we can do some hunting together. Yeah, which would be nice. Yeah, I was just talking to Corey as well, and uh, he's in Pennsylvania, and we were talking about deer hunting and fishing and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll probably be. I think traveling around a little bit. The East Coast is pretty, uh, pretty good for various types of hunting and fishing. So ooh, I want to explore that, especially. One on my list is the Sitka deer in uh, in Maryland. I'm excited about that. That'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Maybe go up to Maine, hunt some moose. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can draw a moose tag or not, but it's on the list. But um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the highlights. Uh, we just got a big restock of our big game blend. Uh, we have all our spices currently in stock. I think I'm looking at only three bottles of our Upland Fowl, but everything else we got a pretty good stock. So. Great stocking stuffers for Christmas. Hint, hint. Uh, and then we've got all of our new shirts that are out. We've got our uh, our kids' uh, book that's out, Wild Game A to Z. If you haven't seen that yet, go head over to Harvesting Nature and click on that. I'll put the show uh, link in the show notes as well. That's a cool like A to Z guide for kids to learn uh animals they put their tracks in there there's even like the phonetic pronunciation of the sounds they make so you can you can practice pretty pretty entertaining book it entertains me so that's good um but yeah other than that i think i think we're ready to talk some meat um let's do it let's do it um quick drink of water I think Adam and I are both battling things that we're hoping to get rid of very soon. Uh, as far as health wise, I'm, I'm on the tail end of it. Um, I'm just starting mine. So hopefully it's <laughs> done soon. <laughs> hopefully it's good. You'll be good. So, yeah. all right. First up on the chopping block <laughs> is tenderloin. So the tenderloin, it, it's, you know, it's going to be pretty common in most game animals. Uh, you're going to see it even on bear. Uh, which is uh, an interesting thought when you think about it holistically, but um, it's the long lean muscle that's uh, within the loin of the animal. So that's that term loin indicates center portion of the animal on the inside um, and the outside of the spine. So we're going to get into a little bit more of that when we talk about the loin, which you'll hear commonly referred to as a back strap. And so some differences between the two, but, um, what we're talking about right now is the tenderloin. So it refers to the possosus, the sos, sos, I think it's sos (laughs) major muscle. So, uh, it is famed as the most tender cut on the animal. And uh, it's interesting because if you reflect back just a few seconds ago, I used the word lean and tender to describe this cut. Those are not often used in the same. If you roll back a couple episodes on the um, where we're talking about the front shoulder, Adam's got a good bit of dialogue where he talks about uh, how lean cuts can be tender. Uh, do you want to like paraphrase that a little bit? Uh I can remind you. So basically, yeah, I can't remember what I talked about. Now. You've got you've got muscles that may be lean, but they work, 
and they're on the outer part of the animal and they're constantly used and that right. use makes them tough uh, over time. But uh, the introduction of fat in that helps create more tender muscle, um, which you think of on like beef and other animals like that that have a lot of fat content, but uh, wild game does not. So therefore when you get those cuts that are worked a lot, like the neck, the front shoulder, they're full of flavor and they're also very tough because they do a lot of work. The tenderloin is lean and it's positioned on the inside of the rib cage. So it doesn't get a lot of use. It doesn't really hold. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was, uh, I'm, I'm back on back with it. Now. Back with it. Now you remember. Uh, yeah. The cool, th- cool thing about the tenderloin is in, in respect to all that, like hard worker, hard working muscles versus non hard working muscles is that it's the least hard working muscle of the whole body, basically. And it's used simply for posture rather than movement. So the basically the, the point of the tenderloin is just to hold posture. So there, there's no connective tissue, really. There's no real sinews or anything in, in the meat. Uh, it's just like a clean meat that doesn't do much at all other than it's just kind of there to hold things up a little bit. It's not really even supporting weight like the loins. So out of a body of hardworking muscles, the laziest one is going to be the most tender. And uh, even if it's lean, even if, um, you know, there's not much to it, it's going to be super tender. But without all that movement and without the connective tissue, without all those other things, without that blood flow that's constantly moving through larger muscles, uh, it's also going to be lacking flavor a little bit which I'm sure we'll get to a little more later. We will. So um, on traditional tenderloins, and we'll, we'll talk about beef tenderloins and use it as a reference point, uh, but understand there is a difference in size, and it's going to be a difference of what you're going to do with it in the kitchen. There's three main cuts that you get off a tenderloin, three portions, just to say not cuts, the butt, the center, and the tail. So if you picture it's uh, kind of uh, cylindrical, and then it goes into a taper. Uh, I would think on most wild game animals, you're going to see it more of like kind of taper on each side versus be like full on one side and tapered on the other. Uh, think like a thick end and a thin end just on game. It's usually they're both kind of thin ends. They're not really a thick and a thin, but on beef, which a lot of the traditional cuts are uh, classified as and we use as a reference point in conversation, you're going to have a thick end and a thin end, the butt and the tail. So, where, if you don't know, where is the uh, tenderloin located? Well, I alluded to it earlier. So the tenderloin is located inside the rib cage under the lumbar vertebrae near the kidneys inside the body cavity. So that's a, that's a very specific place on the animal. Uh, you could dig around in a big animal and not find it. Um, you could dig around on a small animal and it may be just... A sliver. I've seen super, super thin tenderloins off of like antelope and some other animals, which is very, very uh, frustrating because that's often like the prized cut. Um, but speaking of cut, how do you remove it? So when we're we're thinking about big animals, it's fairly easy, right? You're going to get the guts out of it, um, and you're going to see it very visible on game animals. Oftentimes, you're dressing it in the field. Uh, and so you can approach it to, I'm going to field dress this, I'm going to pull out all the guts and I'm going to access where the tenderloins are 
And then um, I'm going to use my knife, kind of drag and pull as it comes off. You'll see it very apparent. It's the only real piece of meat that that's uh, easily visible inside the body cavity. And then uh, you, you could also use the gutless method. So there is a gutless method where you can work your way and pull out the the uh, body organ sack. I don't know another way to say it. There's probably a, there is a biological term for it. And essentially, the the bag that is holding all the organs, you can kind of pull that out. I think, pretty sure, um, without you know puncturing or cutting or doing whatever and access it. Um, and then there's the method where you can, I've never done this. I've heard it talked about. Uh, you can actually go in from the ribs at the top uh, and like cut sections of the ribs to access it and cut it there. Um, that I think that conversation actually came up because uh, I was giving a presentation on meat cuts in a uh, Hunters for Sustainability with the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and one of the Colorado game wardens were there, and we got into the conversation of required cuts. So in Colorado, a tenderloin is a required cut you have to take from the field. And my question was, well, how do you do that if you're doing using the gutless method? And the warden was like, well, you either take out the guts or you access it, you know, picture an elk, you access it, uh, through the ribs, which I thought was very interesting. Never been in a position to do it myself. Um, so curious to see that, but either way, uh, pretty easy to get in there and remove that cut from, uh, the vertebrae, uh, and get it pulled out. I usually, uh, use my fingers almost more than the knife when it comes to the tenderloin because it, it peels away pretty easily. I just kind of use the knife as a guide to snick away anything that's keeping it like holding it to the rib cage and use my fingers kind of pulling at it gently until it comes up. Um, then you're not kind of mangling it, jamming the knife in, uh, especially if you're in a dark gut cavity laying on its side in the in the dark after you track a deer. Uh, your fingers can actually do a lot of the work. And just whenever you come to a little resistance, just snick with your knife tip a little bit and it will all come out pretty easily for you. So a little bit on the culinary history of it, uh, I'm imagining – I, I couldn't find reference where it said the, the term tenderloin was first used, um, but it's also called different things. So tenderloin is what it's going to be called in, in the U.S. Um, in Australia, you're likely to see it known as the eye filet. In France, it'll be commonly known as the filet. In Brazil, it's also known as the filet mignon, but that's in the States a different cut to us. And then uh, the fillet in the United Kingdom and South Africa. Um, and then on pork, uh, also known as the gentleman's cut. I'm guessing that's due to the high quality of the cut. It would go to the the more well-off individuals as we talk about uh, food history. Very common for the delicious tender cuts to go to the wealthy and the the more tough uh, cuts to go to uh, those less fortunate, uh, which oddly enough has shaped global cuisine. Um, so with that, when we talk about cooking, um, cooking it. So as I mentioned earlier, earlier, most big game animals are going to have a fairly uh, thin tenderloin. So you're not going to get a big tenderloin, maybe elk or bison bear. You'll see a little 
bigger ones. But for the most part, if you're talking about deer, whitetail, mule deer, blacktail, whatever, antelope, uh, you're going to see smaller tenderloins inside the animal. Um, most commonly what you're going to see, I think folks do is they're going to sear them on high heat season. Well, first off with harvesting nature's big game blend, because that's what it's designed for deliciousness. You're going to sear it on high heat, uh, to medium and cut it into medallions. So I will say like bear or pig, uh, you could also sear, just make sure you're hitting temp, or you could sous vide and make sure you're hitting temp and then reverse sear, cut into medallions. Probably the most common preparation methods. We're going to talk a little bit later about some specific recipes, um, but that's kind of it. So if we talked about what I mentioned earlier, though, the three specific cuts, the tail, the center, and the butt, uh, your tail you're going to see made into medallions. Your center of the tenderloin is actually where your filet mignon comes from. That's that beef cut everybody prizes. You go see it. It's like $40 in the in the supermarket for your beef cut. And then also, too, uh, the beef wellington. So not necessarily a wild game wellington because we'll see those commonly made with loins, uh, not tenderloins. Although you could make it a whole tenderloin. You may just end up with more dough and less meat. Um, so in your beef wellington cut uh, – you know, that big sort of like log of meat, that's going to be the center portion of the tenderloin. And then the butt, which I mentioned earlier, if we think about like thick ends and thin ends, the butt's the thick end. That's uh, going to be cut up into steaks usually, or one that I thought was very exciting uh, was carpaccio. I love carpaccio. Those that don't know it, like very thinly shaved pieces of raw beef, uh, Italian dish that's super tasty. Favorite with like oil and lemon and capers and usually salad and crostinis or delicious breads and things like that. Cheeses. So uh, that's a great thing. So uh, also fun fact that uh, that the tenderloin is also a portion of uh, the T-bone. I didn't know that. So, mm, the porterhouse. Yeah. Yep. So uh, and you can make T-bones out of wild game, by the way. So just fun For fact. Sure. So even like a, a center cut pork chop. Yep. You know, it's like the kind of, it looks similar to a T-bone or some lamb chops. If it has the kind of larger oval shaped piece of meat on the one side and the smaller round piece on the other side, you're looking at the loin and tenderloin together uh, with the ribs separating them in the spine. Yeah. So you would uh, so you get kind of, Two different cuts on the same cut, which is cool. You split the spine down the middle and then cut it into sections to get your T-bone. I just want to point out that it's often erroneously called, like back straps are erroneously called tenderloin. People kind of mix up loin and tenderloin, but there are two very separate things. And we're covering both here, so you'll you'll see. But uh, you'll often hear people who don't have as much experience calling the loin the tenderloin or vice versa. And uh, it gets very confusing to people. But just think the tender is the little, the smaller one. Uh, and also a, a point to make uh, back to when you're removing it from the animal. Um, there's no need to let your tenderloins age along with your animal. So what I do is when I remove the guts, I will remove the tenderloin as well. Uh, when you're working with something like a uh, white tail or a mule deer or antelope or something, the tenderloins are so small 
they're already tender, so they don't really need to age and tenderize it more. And you'll end up drying out uh, quite a bit of that um, top side of the flesh, which you'll have to cut off later. And you'll just reduce the size of your already small tenderloins. So if you're gutting your animal, just remove the tenderloins along with the guts, bring them home, cook them up or freeze them, and then you can use the rest of the animal. Um, The tenderloin will generally have a fair amount of silver skin on it. It might come off with a little bit of chain, which is like a small piece of meat kind of attached to the side. Just use an extremely sharp knife and poke it underneath the silver skin so you can see the knife. So it's so in there so thinly that it's translucent and you can see through it to the knife and gently cut it away and then you'll be good to go. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. All right, moving on to the uh, the loin or the backstrap. Uh, those are going to be commonly referred to as the same cut of meat, um, which is really interesting when you think about meat as a whole. Uh, it varies different from animal to animal, but in the hunting world, no matter the animal, I've heard people call them the loin, I've heard people call them the backstrap. Um, I've kind of moved away from calling them backstraps and tend to refer to them as loins. Um, but, you know, even though I alluded to before that on beef, the loin is like a portion of the animal, not this specific cut, because that's divided up into uh, like primary cuts or grocery store cuts from there. Um. So when we talk about the physical description of what is a loin, it's the long uh, strips of lean meat running on top of the animal on either side of the spine and resting on top of the rib cage. Uh, Its Latin term is longissimus, uh, which means long one. Um, Somebody feel free to correct me on my Latin. Um, (laughs) Uh, in, in beef, as I mentioned, it's broken up into different cuts based, in, based on the positional reference to the ribs. Uh, so it's also commonly called to is the strip loin in beef, and it produces the sirloin, the porterhouse, the New York strip, a bunch of other uh, very common beef cuts that you'll see at the grocery store. Uh, in wild game, we tend to just remove it into one whole chunk uh, and then generally cut it up into steaks or, you know, small type roasts from there. I will say that if you think about it, if you look at it as a whole, you've got this whole loin laid out in front of you. And in this, just like the tenderloin, it kind of tapers on each end. Um, the front end or the fore end of the loin 
has a lot more tendons uh, as it starts to connect to the neck. Your uh, back portion kind of just tapers off and gets super thin. So you can even, if you look at a loin itself, you can break it up into things other than steaks. Like you can take the fore end of it where it connects close to the neck. That may be a good candidate for like some sort of like roasts um, because you can melt down whatever sinews inside of there uh, or silver skin or whatever and not have to like go digging through it with your knife. Uh, Or, you know, if you cut into a steak, you're chewing on that, dealing with it, whatever. Your center cut, that's going to be probably where you're going to take your steak from or your Wellington cuts, as we mentioned. Um, Also good to just cut into sort of like uh, roast and maybe you're eating them at like a mid rare temp or uh, um, and sliced them thin. Uh, and then the like butt end of it where it's connecting to your rump uh, on the animal that you could cut up into stew meat if it gets too thin, like get it down or like stir fry something you can use. Um, kebabs, really, really nice. Kebabs, great. Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. really good. Um, that's a great idea. So that's kind of like when you think about it holistically and breaking it into those three cuts, that's like what, what I would recommend. Um, Marty talked about where it was. It's very apparent. If you look at an animal, you'll see it kind of the spine is the division point, um, which is really important when you're, you're removing it. So I always start with one cut down the spine uh, and then, you know, I go basically follow the spine down kind of the curvatures you have to follow and you you can easily get your thumb or your finger in there to kind of like move the meat away as you're slicing and i'll generally start from the depending on how the animal is hanging one end work my way down and then i'll go back and kind of slowly follow through with my knife following the curvature of the ribs and peel it peel it the rest of the way off and then leave, you'll be left with the silver skin on one side and your fresh cut on the other. Um, I also try to follow it as far up into the neck as I can. I don't necessarily worry about that on the, on the other end um, because it, it very clearly hits uh, into that back quarter. Like you'll see where it kind of ends there, but it kind of trails up into the neck. And I like to try to get all the way up in there and get as much as I can. That way you're kind of separating it from your neck meat. Um, as far as the silver skin itself, if I'm going to freeze it whole, I typically leave the silver skin on. Um, and I do that as just an added protective barrier, uh, to it. Cause it's just like Adam mentioned, like you accidentally get freezer burn or it dries out or whatever. Like you're going to lose that, uh, if it was just bare meat. So typically I'll, I'll try to keep that, um, if I'm doing like individual steaks, breaking them out, uh, I will take the silver skin off and then cut the steaks. Yeah, remember uh, if you're cutting silver skin off, throw it into your um, scrap pile for stock. So I hope you guys are all making stock out of your bones and whatnot. But those tendons and all that silver skin has a lot of nice collagen, which turns into gelatin, which makes your stock way more rich and unctuous. So. Um, you know, just keep a bag in the freezer and throw all that junk into there and then and then add it to your stocks later on and uh, it'll just make it a lot better. So don't throw that stuff out. I think when we when we talk about the culinary history, so we'll get into a little bit about the individual cuts that come off the loin. So 
Uh, I mentioned steaks, right? Steaks are generally considered boneless. So you won't have those, you know, the, the presence of the spine, uh, whereas uh, chops, so you would hear them venison chops or deer chops or elk chops or pork chops, probably sounds familiar, all have your presentation of the bone. So that's going to be a big differentiating factor because the loin uh, and the tenderloin both themselves are probably most coupled with that terminology. And uh, it's just how they're cut and served on, cooked, cut, cooked, and served on the bone, which is pretty much your spine. And usually when I'm doing a deer I'll, for myself, I'll strip off one of the loins or back straps boneless, the way you mentioned, and then I'll do another one uh, bone in for chops. And to do that, it's pretty simple. You can use a bone saw and or a cleaver, a meat cleaver with a rubber mallet. And where I want the kind of ribs to end, so the very top portion of the ribs, just a couple inches on a, on a little chop, um, I score it with a knife just to see where I'm going. I take the cleaver, lay it over the, the front tip of the cleaver, lay it over the rib, and then hit it with the rubber mallet, obviously on a big chopping block. And that don't don't do it on plastic right tables. <laughs> no, yeah, we've learned our lesson there. Uh, alternatively, you could use a bone saw and cut through all the ribs, and then use the saw or the um, cleaver to then cut through the spine to uh, make individual chops. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Just make sure that you cut the meat with a knife and cut the bone with the saw or the cleaver. Don't try to saw through meat. It's not going to do any favors. <laughs> um, but then I have one side boneless, one side bone in, and I kind of like that having both, um, both available. Also, if you have like a much smaller animal, like a fawn or a doe or maybe like an antelope or something, you can also, like you were mentioning, there's like sections of it. Um, I might take, I might go totally boneless and take, say, the two sections closest to the neck or the shoulder and then tie them together into a roast. And that will give you a little, a little extra thickness for your meat if the loins are really small. Um, and you might appreciate that later on rather than having these tiny little steaks. Um, so those are a couple, couple pointers if you have working with smaller animals. So this is a... Uh... We've talked a little bit about this. I'm, I'm glad you brought this in. We've talked about how we really divide the the animals into four quarters. Um, oh, sorry, five quarters. This would have been part of the first quarter. Uh, the primo quattro. Uh, and that's in Italian butchery. The first quarter would have went to nobility. So now we're talking about probably the two most tender cuts on an animal. So you've got the tenderloin and the loin going to nobility. Uh, the second quarter went to clergy, the third to merchants, the fourth to soldiers, and the fifth quarter, which we'll talk about later on and we've talked about before, is the offal, uh, the organ, meat, and things like that, went to the working class. So uh, very interesting when you think about its uh, position in, uh, in the order of meatology. I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> <laughs> and considering that the pork tenderloin is, it was still called the gentleman's cut until relatively recently, it shows that that never really went away. Um, that, that 
first quarter, like the tenderloins and loins are still the most expensive and still generally go to the upper class even today. I love a I love a thin cut uh, pork steak or pork chop for breakfast, like with egg and potatoes Ooh, and all yeah. that. It's just like it's so tasty. There's a gentleman's breakfast. Gentleman's breakfast. <laughs> Only the yeah. finest eggs. I'll have it with quail eggs. <laughs> um, a little little anecdote actually about like kind of the the first quarter and the fifth quarter and, and different things, kind of meat and poverty. Um, and my my uh, partner's family, part of their family is from Belgium, and and their grandmother made this delicious kind of Belgian Flemish stew. And no one could ever replicate it. Uh, they had the recipe, general recipe, but no one ever could replicate it. And I kind of looked into it and I figured what might be happening is that their grandmother, who was quite old and would have been working with very little money to buy meat back in the day, like now we just have meat everywhere. But back then it was like more expensive and harder to come across. She would have been using the cheapest parts of the animal that she could find. Where today you go in the grocery store and like, hmm, I'm going to look for like that nice, beautiful piece of meat uh that like upper class one maybe from the loin um with no connective tissue or it looks bright red and beautiful and that's never gonna cook the same way as that one that she used to cook which is probably a gnarly old piece of meat <laughs> that was perfect for that kind of uh methodology of cooking because you're slow cooking it it's breaking down there's all the connective tissue and everything um and if you use like a loin roast it's never going to have that same beautiful unctuous kind of flavor and feeling and uh it's an interesting thing that today we have meat cheap meat at our disposal uh for better or worse and mostly for the worst but uh these cuts don't act in the same way and if we're using peasant recipes and and using like the first quarter meat in the peasant recipes it's not actually going to work out for you very well so it's just something a little find a little interesting that's a good thought yeah i, I would say too it's actually really good because you think about what, uh, you know, we talk a lot about what, what to do with cuts. Let's talk a little bit about what not to do with cuts. Uh, with this cut particularly, like probably not going to braise it. Uh, probably not going to slow cook it. You, you're going to want to, if you are going to do any type of roast, you want to like put it in the oven at a higher heat and get it cooked quick so you're not drying it out. Um likely high heat and sear, but you want to stay away uh, from those long, slow cooks where you're going to like try to tenderize it because it's already a tender cut. Uh, you know, I've seen people sous vide uh, loin steaks before, um, different things like that. But yeah, I think generally you're going to find it like the quickest way to enjoy it is probably going to be the best. Yeah. You want to go to probably wouldn't want to cook it past like 135 degrees. Um, anything past medium, and you're starting to edge into, especially with wild game, kind of crumbly, dry territory. Which when I and, hear uh, when I hear people that dislike wild game or have had a bad experience, which is most likely what it is, it's probably this cut that they tried from some uncle yeah. or aunt auntie and it was probably terribly overcooked because they didn't know what to do with it and they just like here try it and you're like man this is shoe leather yeah exactly so it's also i I find for cuts like this like these 
cuts don't have a ton of flavor. I find the tenderloin have very little flavor and the loins have a really nice flavor, but it's quite mild, understated. I wouldn't be wrapping bacon around these things and, you know, going crazy with marinades and like big hefty spices, like, like use like a, like a well-balanced spice blend or just salt and pepper go a little simpler with these because you want to enjoy that flavor if you're wrapping it in bacon and throwing cream cheese and all this shit at it it's it's gonna overwhelm the that beautiful flavor of the animal of that uh, and of the cut uh there are cuts that are stronger flavor that can withstand those kind of things so i'm not saying don't do that altogether, but maybe keep your keep your uh these kind of cuts a little more simple and you'll probably enjoy it more Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com the 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. If you if you do want to use a marinade, I would go with the tail end towards the hindquarters that we talked about, and when we're talking about you know kebabs or something like that, and I would maybe use a marinade for those. But in terms of marinating a steak, like a loin steak, what's happening is you've basically create, created a wet surface, uh, and when the steak goes into the pan or onto the grill, it's going to have to evaporate all that liquid first, and it's not going to get that nice hard sear, and you're not going to get that mired reaction, which happens to make that kind of brown crispiness on the steak that's going to give you all that awesome flavor. Uh, marinades can get in the way of that. They're not, like, evil by any means, but if you're going to just try to do, like, a nice steak, there's no need to kind of add flavor or or tenderize these cuts, so... So it's not quite the the right ones to marinate unless maybe you're going towards kebabs or something. And uh, same goes with like schnitzel or anything where you might be pounding. Uh, These are already pretty tender cuts. So unless you're maybe working with like a really old buck or something, I still probably wouldn't think you'd need it. Uh, Maybe save the schnitzel or or cutlets or whatever you're pounding for like the hindquarters. And uh, because the reason you are pounding is to, in fact, tenderize the cut of meat. And there's no real need to do that with the with the um, back straps. So yeah, so maybe just keep keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. This is a this is a cut that's definitely like keep it simple. As we say that, we're going to go into some delicious, more than simple recipes. <laughs> we're going to contradict ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for those that want to move beyond uh, beyond a little S and P and garlic powder, which is great, by the way. If you get a good flavor animal it's a great way to go all right let's see first up um oh this one's yours first up we'll, we'll go to the tenderloin 
the miso milk braised wild pork tenderloin. You want to talk through this one, Adam? Sure. Um, so usually for a tenderloin, I would cook it pretty rare, medium rare. But with wild pork, you can't really do that because there's the risk of trichinosis. So I thought I'd break the rules that I just told you not to do and braise it. <laughs> uh and I kind of worked off like uh, this kind of old Italian recipe where they would braise pork and milk and thought that would give it like a really gentle kind of braise and just cook it through without drying it out. And to kind of modernize the recipe, I added some uh, white miso paste to the milk. So for anyone who doesn't know, miso paste is like a, a Japanese kind of soy product that's full of umami and lots of really interesting complex flavors. So I basically seared the tenderloins really quick, um, reduced the heat, added some milk, uh, the miso paste, some garlic chives from the garden, and just simmered it on really low for about 20 minutes. And uh, then I just passed the liquid through a fine sieve and kind of cleaned it up and poured it back over the tenderloins. And it was was delicious. Um, And it's a great way to make use of something um, like the wild pig tenderloin or any wild pig cut where you, you don't have to worry about it being undercooked where normally with the tenderloin, I would try to maybe edge it up just beyond the, like the temp that you needed at this way. I just took care of it all together. It was still tender, beautiful and really elegant dish. So, um, this other one I'll, I'll talk about next. That one sounds really good. Uh, Really, really delicious. Um, I mentioned earlier carpaccio. So we actually have over on the Harvesting Nature website a recipe by Arizada, uh, one of our uh, contributors. And he, a big fan of carpaccio, uh, he made mule deer carpaccio, which I think is very interesting when you think about the big, bold flavor of mule deer, uh, especially compared to whitetail or beef or anything like that. I think it's, it's cool. It's excites me. I don't mean it in a bad way. Um, so, and his approach really, and I'll give this caveat caveat, uh, consuming raw undercooked meats can increase your risk of foodborne illness. End of disclosure. So eat with your own, eat at your own risk. Um, you're better off giving it a hard freeze and then, and then going for it afterwards rather than getting it right off the animal. Yeah. That's what, and that's what I was going to say is, is we mentioned there about having it frozen for about an hour to make it easier to cut. I would likely have it frozen for a couple of days. Um, at at the lowest temperature you could get it like end of the negatives, if you can get it there to kill absolutely the most of the bacteria that you can, that could potentially be harmful. Um, there may still be bacteria present. There may be parasites present. Know this. Uh, I don't say this to discourage you, but uh, it, it is a reality in wild animals. So um, Ara takes the deer tenderloin um, and slices. Basically, he just uses the whole tenderloin. I would say this would be my approach to it because the tenderloin, as I mentioned, is very long and tapered. I would probably have some way to like either fold it or roll it in plastic wrap and tighten the ends. So you get like a cool, like round, almost sausage shape. And then you can use either a meat slicer or an extremely sharp knife. Filet knives work really well to cut it as 
thin as you can get it. That's the key feature with carpaccio is it's very thin, almost see-through sometimes. If you could imagine meat is see-through. Um, he, he takes and, uh, you know, plates it up with arugula, with capers, Parmesan cheese, salt, pepper. Very basic, very simple. Uh, and then he creates a sauce of arugula, lemon juice, oil, Dijon mustard, Parmesan, salt, pepper, and some more capers. So you imagine all the same flavors are kind of living together. And you essentially take your carpaccio and you lay it all flat out on a plate and you take all your arugula and your other fixings and kind of pile on top of it and drizzle your sauce and, uh, you know, enjoy it with crackers or bread or just as, as you, as you will with a fork, um, super tasty, but that hard freeze is key. And then having it pretty much frozen, maybe not quite frozen, when you're cutting it is going to help you get those super thin pieces. Um, what's our next one here? Next up, uh, you want to talk about mushroom stuffed venison tenderloin? Sure. This one's from uh, one of our other contributors, Dustin Carroll. Uh, he basically uh, takes two venison tenderloins Um slices them open or butterflies it. So basically you're making a cut down the center and then opening it up like a book a little bit and then making further cuts along the side. So it kind of unfolds like a butterfly. Um, and then basically makes uh, stuffing out of cooked mushrooms and onions and some parsley and butter and everything and stuffs the tenderloins with that, uh, ties them back up, um, then glazes them in a maple syrup, hickory syrup, and fig glaze, which is really interesting, and uh, finishes off like sears them, finishes off in the oven. Um, so that'd be a nice, really rich, kind of sweet and salty dish, um, and a great way to do something a little fancier with your tenderloins rather than just the basic sear. No, that sounds super good. And I, I think of it too is like you could even if you if say you had a super thin set of tenderloins, you could like tie them together with that filling in the middle yeah. versus like butterflying them open, I think would be another alternative to that. Um and I, I would say you could probably get away with just if your internal stuff is cooked, if you just seared them in the pan, you may not even have to finish them in the oven. Especially with smaller tenderloins, yeah. like off of venison. I actually worked for like for a butcher for a while. My job in a in a kind of a flea market or weekend market, mm-hmm. and my job in the morning was to go shopping around all the vegetables and cheese stands and whatever, and then come up with a new tenderloin recipe, stuffed tenderloin recipe. So I would cut them open and stuff them and re tie back up together and put them into the into the um, under the glass and sell those, and they were always really popular. So I'd come up with something new every weekend, which is kind of a fun thing. That's super fun. Um, mm. All right. We've got uh, our next recipe. So we're going to transition now from the tenderloin back to the loin, loin slash backstrap. Uh, so I, actually, I want to mention this fun fact. Backstrap on a cow is like this uh, – I forget what it, it's called. It's not like a tendon. Maybe it is a tendon or something, but – it. Dried out and they give them to dogs uh, to like chew mm. on, 
which is very interesting when you think about that and the concept of what we call a backstrap and like what it is on a, a cow. Or st- Probably that main yellow tendon running along the spine. Yeah. Of. Yeah. Yeah. Which could be like close to where it got its name on a, a on game animals. True. I think they used to actually pull that out of game animals like venison, yeah. dry it, pound it, and then twist them into bowstrings. Hmm. That tendon. Yeah. So that makes sense. Little fun fact. Nice. We're full of them. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right. So next up, we'll talk about smothered black bear chops. So this is Jeff Benda's recipe. Another, uh, he's one of our senior staff writers. So smothered black bear chops. Remember earlier, I mentioned the difference between steaks and chops. So this would uh, be bone in uh, for this. So, oh, well, he says boneless bear chops, <laughs> bear steaks. <laughs> um, so uh, he does use four six ounce, basically one inch thick boneless bear chops, two teaspoons of Harvested Nature blend, a myriad of other spices, uh, which complement the big game blend very well. Some chicken broth, Dijon mustard, Worcestershire sauce, heavy whipping cream, uh, and serves it atop egg noodles. Um, so really, this one's uh, you're just going to kind of sear it in a cast iron. Uh, pan over medium heat until you get a nice uh, golden brown crust on that. Before that, you're going to season the cut with Harvested Nature's Big Game Blend. Um, preheat your oven while you're doing this process to 400 degrees. And uh, you're going to um, reduce your heat after that. You pull your chops off, reduce the heat. Then you'll add in all your butter, onion, garlic, saute that up. Uh, and then add your flour and rosemary in there. And then stir in your chicken broth, your Dijon mustard, your Worcestershire. Let that simmer. It's going to thicken up. Uh, and then take your bear chops, put them back in the skillet, and put them in the preheated oven um, for uh, about 10 minutes. And he says until its internal temps reach 165. I think you could probably get away with 140. Uh, if you wanted a little more tender cut, uh, and then you're going to serve that and the delicious juice atop some noodles or potatoes or whatever you've got. Um, I think it'd be really good if you made like small roasted potatoes in the oven while you have your oven going at 400 degrees and pulled those out and served it atop that. That would be pretty delicious. Um, Once again, that's like a recipe that I probably wouldn't do with, venison but with bear where yeah. you're overcooking it to get rid of the trichinosis then you're looking for ways to keep it um nice and moist and that smothering action is going to really help with that um so this is why we're we're breaking the rules with certain animals just because we can't eat it rare or medium rare like we'd like to so you have to take steps to to keep that moist and delicious yeah you want to talk about the next two uh they're yours and then i'll close out with the with the last one. Sure. Um, so one of them I have is another kind of, I, I, I chose some recipes that were a little off the wall because um, otherwise like the loins and tenderloins, like literally just sear them into steaks and, or grill them and they're delicious. So I've been looking for some different things. So this one is a coyote. So we got a coyote at one of our pig camps. We got some coyote meat, I should say. And uh, I took the back straps or the loins and 
wasn't quite looking for a pure coyote flavor like I might be with like a nice white tail or elk or something. Um, wasn't sure what to expect. So I kind of did a recipe that was a little more um, flavorful than I normally would for backstraps. I basically um, dusted them in flour and lots of Harvesting Nature Big Game Spice Blend, which kind of just goes with everything, even coyote. <laughs> so it's a really well-balanced one. Added some salt, um, tossed them all up, and then fried them and uh, made sure that the temperatures were beyond medium because we were dealing with coyote as predator. Um but I fried them until nice and crispy and they're, they're all just little chunks kind of. And, um, and then I drizzled them with honey and flaky salt. So it had that like sweet and salty, sweet and spicy kind of thing going on. The meat was cooked through, but not overcooked, uh, and dry. And I would say that Cody is a flavor that's not at all offensive, but it's not one of the, the best of the wild games by any means. So having a little extra um, kind of coating and spice and everything on there did did well to uh, not mask that, but just kind of balance that flavor out a little bit. So it turned out delicious, and everyone tried it and really loved it. So um, do you want me to do the, that next one too? Yeah, go for it. Uh, so last one was a shaved venison bagels with horseradish cream cheese. Um, this one is something I like to do with loins often. If you are planning on slicing thin or slicing the steaks, you're actually sometimes better off just cooking a whole piece of loin rather than cutting into steaks and then cooking it. Um, it's going to retain a lot more moisture. It's going to have more surface area for the uh, my reaction to happen, and it's just going to be a little nicer. So I recommend... If you're planning on, you know, slicing for tacos or or this kind of recipe or even cutting the steaks, maybe just searing the entire piece rather than cutting the steaks first. Anyways, that's what I did with the venison. I just seasoned it just with salt, um, seared it to medium rare, and then I sliced it nice and thinly and stacked it onto bagels, um, sesame seed bagels, Montreal style. Not New York style, although either would be good. Um, and then I made like a whipped cream cheese spread with uh, cream cheese, yogurt, horseradish, black pepper, capers, and then put some red onion, sliced tomato, and sliced cucumbers and made a sandwich out of it. And um, absolutely delicious. You can use that kind of slight, like sear and slice method and stack it onto sandwiches or baguettes or tacos or whatever you want. It's always going to work out nicely for you. <clears throat> Sorry, cough drop ran out. <laughs> um, so the one I want to talk about too is is like a, a as a, as Adam mentioned, it's like a little off the wall recipe, but this one's with wild pork loin uh, in steaks. Um, and I learned this when I was in New Orleans and you've got really two ways to do this. You've got one way which involves, um, so I'll, I'll lead off with what it is before I start talking about more. So it's root beer glazed wild pork loin with cheese grits. Phenomenal recipe, by the way. <coughs> um, but when I talk about two ways to do it, I'm really talking about two ways to do the glaze. Like there's a very traditional way to do the glaze where you 
maybe take root beer and beef stock or some sort of stock and mix it together and let it reduce until you get this like glaze consistency. And then there's the way that I do it. Um, cause I'm from the streets. Uh, so essentially the way that I did it is you're going to cook your pork in a pan until it gets to the temperature that you want it. You'd also do this with venison as well. Um, and then you're going to take it out of the pan real quick and you're going to turn up the heat uh, until you get your pan nice and hot. And then you're going to pour the root beer in the pan and you're going to put the the uh, the steaks back in the pan. Now remember, you're going to cook them under a little bit. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. You're going to cook them under a little bit because they're going to go on this high heat. And quickly, that root beer is going to turn to this like sticky, icky mess and you're going to flip around uh, the, the steaks in the pan as you're doing this. And that's going to give you the glaze. That's a quick glaze. I'll coin that. It's probably already taken. But um, yeah, way easier to do than like spending hour, you know, an hour or more reducing down your glaze to like glaze it later. Different flavors, you know, whatever. Uh, the grits. I'm a huge fan of cheese uh, grits. You can use whatever kind you want. For the cheese, uh, I prefer Fontina. That's like um, very tasty. So that's essentially how you prepare this. Super simple. Cook the steak. Toss it in some root beer as it cooks really high heat and uh, gets super thick. So, um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, unorthodox way to cook uh, pork steak. So enjoy it. But um I don't know. I think we, we've gone through all the recipes. We've talked about the cuts about as much as I think we can, uh, given the time. So I will uh, open it up for last thoughts. So, Adam, you got a, a last thought? I think I'm going to end it with a quote from our mutual friend, Adam Steele. Um, and it's something that he, on like uh, Facebook and Instagram forums, when people ask, what should I do with this loin or tenderloin? He'll always reply, uh, salt and heat if it must be cooked. And uh, that's Adam through and through. And it's very true. So keep it simple. You can you can play around once you get into things, but keep it simple to start. And, you know, salt and a little bit of heat is all this all these cuts really need. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think it's, uh, you know, the, the flavors are there, right? We all hunt game for various reasons. Um flavor and sustenance being one of the top ones. So I think like you don't have to do a lot to these cuts to make them taste really good. And, but if you want to get creative and you want to try new things, if you're tired of, you know, uh, sort of like enjoying it traditional way, uh, you can dip into some of the recipes that we mentioned and they're all phenomenal. You can't go wrong. I would say the only way you go wrong with these cuts is if you're overcooking them. Um, other than that, they're going to be pretty tasty. So enjoy, share them. I tend to save those as my like showcase cuts for when I'm having guests over or if I'm giving meat to somebody um, because they're they're easy for them to cook, very approachable and straightforward. So with that, I will say uh, thanks everybody for listening. Um, we'll make all the show notes available online. Uh, make sure you follow us on all the social medias, Harvesting Natures and uh, the Intrepid Eater. Uh, get, get your 
social accounts tuned to that. Lots of cool stuff happening. Uh, new t-shirts, new podcasts, new articles, recipes, all that stuff out on a weekly basis or daily basis, actually. Um, and then whatever podcast platform you're listening to, punch that five-star button. Leave us a review. Tell us we're doing right or you know, tell us we're doing wrong. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Every once in a while, it's fun to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.